really valuable. Um, um, I'd like to welcome Fiona Delondres to um, this uh, to Oxford. It's her first time here. I'm, I'm very, very happy to have you here. I've been a very uh, welcome uh, guest at Durham, and I can tell you that they are extremely hospitable and lovely, and it's a great place to be. Fiona's heading up all sorts of important things in Durham. You can be sure that where Fiona's currently located, things will, important things will be happening. Um, I um, was lucky to hear her complain on Facebook about the last days of submitting for a research project in the European Union for um, an FP7 project from Cecile for the EU counter-terrorism project and I'm very, very happy that after all the pain we went through that it came through. Um, and we're basically here, I think, to hear about what that project is doing and what you're doing with that project. Obviously, as a hub event, we really like to have discussion and lots of dialogue, so um, it's up to you, but I've got a couple minutes, and then we can all go to questions. So, um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome you very much to, to, to Oxford and to carry on talking. Thank you, and thanks very much, everyone, for coming, and thank you in particular to Megan for organising everything so, uh, so nicely. Um, I don't know who put on the weather, but you get a particularly warm uh, thank you. Um, as I'm sure many of you will know, submit the pain involved in submitting the funding application is only the start of the pain. Uh, the real pain comes with, with doing the, the funded work. Um, but we are now 11 months into this 18-month project, which is, has the acronym CECILE. Because everyone knows that the secret to getting European money is to have a catchy acronym. Um, and CECILE stands for Securing Europe Through Counterterrorism, Impact, Legitimacy and Effectiveness. What we are essentially trying to do in that larger piece of work is to figure out how these concepts of impact, legitimacy and effectiveness are understood in EU counterterrorism as they relate particularly to rights, um, how they're currently measured and how they might be uh, better measured or better taken into account in the future. And so what I want to do today is to present, the, present a paper that builds on the findings uh, from one slice of that research, which is around impact and particularly around the impact of counter-terrorism on legally protected fundamental rights within the European Union. Um, the paper I'm presenting builds uh, not only on the desk research and the doctrinal work done within the project, but also on the stakeholder engagement. So as a relatively small project, 17 partners over a year, sorry, seven partners over 18 months, 17 would be more impressive, uh, we have engaged with just under 100 stakeholders. So we have about 40 operational end users, as the code name goes, that is people who actually implement these measures on a daily basis, and civil society... Uh, 10 high-level policymakers who we interviewed, they were done through focus groups, 10 interviews with high-level policymakers in the European institutions, and then an intensive stakeholder workshop of a further 40 stakeholders. So just about, just under 100 uh, stakeholders were engaged with. And at various points, um, some of their perspectives will come through uh, in the paper as well. So from that general outline, the questions, the primary question that this paper, and I apologise for the length of it, if any of you received it, I do hope you didn't put yourself through reading it in advance of today, uh, because you only got it yesterday. Um, the key question that the paper addresses is how rights are accounted for in the making, implementation and review of EU counter-terrorist measures, um, with a supplementary question then as to what adjustments we might make to current practice in order to take rights more fully into account where we recognise um, deficiencies at present. 
So I think what I'll do is to just start by giving you a very brief outline of the scope and nature of EU counterterrorism and then move on to look at these three phases. So the first is the pre-legislative phase uh, where I will primarily focus on what are called ex-ante impact assessments that the Commission does uh, to provide an evidence base for European uh, legislative measures. Secondly, I look at implementation with a particular focus focus on variations across different national contexts in the European Union. And thirdly, I look at ex post facto review by the Commission, by independent experts, and indirect review through judicial review by the Court of Justice of the European Union. Through those three phases, I'm going to use as an example the European Data Retention Directive, which some of you might know was struck down by the Court of Justice uh, earlier this year in April, uh, which gives a nice actual exemplar of the difficulties within the life cycle of an EU counter-terrorist measure. And then at the end, um, I'll talk through two proposed um, solutions, or uh, improvements. Solution is a, is a grand term for, for it. Um, so let's think a little bit about the scope and nature of EU counter-terrorism, first of all. It's important to recognise that on the 10th of September 2001, the EU had no counter-terrorism law or policy. Security was primarily reserved to the states, and it was a matter that states considered to be highly sovereign, as in many cases and in many ways they still do, and it was not something that had generally been subjected to trends of transnationalism and internationalism, not to mention, not to, not to mention regionalism. However, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks of the 11th of September, the EU um, I think demonstrated a trend that was common, which is to internationalise security. In other words, to say that there are some threats that are currently facing states that are of a particular nature, or perceived to be of a particular nature, um, so that a transnational response to them is required. And one of the pieces of work that we did in this project was literally to count how many EU counter-terrorist measures had been introduced. And from September 2001 to July of 2013, 239 measures had been introduced by the EU which could be considered counter-terrorist. And there we defined that as those measures that the EU itself categorised as relating to terrorism when they introduced them. Now, this is both an example of the kind of hyper-legislative activity or hyperactive legislative activity that we see in lots of systems in the wake of a terrorist attack, but it's also quite remarkable in the context of an international institution as deeply politicised as the EU, where everything comprises of a, uh, a comp everything is a compromise between all member states. Um, now, those 239 measures are not all, strictly speaking, hard law, hard law measures. Um, 89 are, are sorry, 88 uh, take the characteristic of binding law. But just to give you um, an impression, we had 26 action plans, 25 regulations, 15 directives, 11 framework decisions, 25 decisions, one joint action, three common positions, 11 recommendations, four resolutions, this figure is important, 111 council communications and conclusions, and eight international agreements. And those are the measures that we could count because they were publicly available. So there will also be multiple critical infrastructure plans and so on that are not, for obvious reasons, publicly available. So you can add some more um, onto that. 
And they're all conceptualised along these four threads that the EU has in its action plan for countering terrorism. Those are protection, prevention, pursuit and response. Um, now, the, as you might expect, we find these measures across a really broad range of different activities, from, uh, which are reflected in these seven top-line objectives that the EU has in the context of countering terrorism. I won't go through... Um, all seven, but they range from quite technical um, objectives like trying to prevent access to economic resources for terrorist organisations or protecting international transportation infrastructure and security to quite political um, objectives such as um, targeting actions under the EU's external relations limb in order to prioritise third countries that are lacking in counter-terrorist capacity. So there are internal and external facing parts of these measures, and it is an extremely broad uh, range of activity, um, particularly bearing in mind that it is a tiny slice of what the EU actually does. And of course, for nation states that are members of the Union, EU-generated counter-terrorism is also a tiny slice of their security. Most competence remains with the state. So probably less than 5% would be emanating from the EU. Um, I'm not going to put you through the 239 measures. I don't think anyone deserves that. But we might categorise them. Or I think it's useful to categorise them in three ways because they're not... You talk to stakeholders and some of them say, well, that isn't a counter-terrorist measure, the measure in question. So there's three ways of thinking about them, or three ways that we we see them here. The first is what I call capitalising measures. These are measures where the antecedent policy decision was made before an attack of some kind or a crisis, but the political atmosphere that came as a result of that crisis provided the space and impetus to actually go ahead and implement that antecedent policy decision. And within that context, the matters in question are characterised as relating to countering terrorism. So two excellent examples in the EU context are the European Arrest Warrant and the Data Retention Directive. The European Arrest Warrant really originates in the Tampere conclusions from 1991, but it was the context of countering terrorism after the 11th of September attacks that resulted in it actually being implemented. Similarly, the Data Retention Directive, and I'll talk a bit more about that because it's going to be a sort of a vignette through the paper, had been in the ether since 1993, um, but it didn't actually get real impetus until after a series of attacks. Uh, First of all, in in May of 2001, an attempt had been made to append um, an exception to the normal requirement to delete personal information once business use, once it had expired in terms of its business use, um, in the e-privacy directive. An attempt was made to put in an exemption for national security. In other words, to say you'd have to keep something security related. Uh, That was defeated by the Parliament, unusually enough, in 2001, It came right back on the agenda in October of 2001, and the very same provision was passed in May of 2002. So that started data retention uh, within the legislative framework, really. Um, Then, in around 2004, they began to float, council began to float the idea of a data retention directive. There was enormous resistance from civil society. Uh, It went off the table. The commissioner uh, even said this isn't going to be considered anymore. And then we had the Madrid and London bombings, 
Right after the London bombings, the UK, which had always pushed data retention, took over the presidency of the council, and very quickly we had a data retention directive. So both of those, and that required telecommunications companies to retain all communication data for between six months and 24 months, uh, which could then be accessed by national authorities. So those are capitalising measures. Antecedent policy uh, decision that couldn't get traction is then the wheels are greased by the context of counterterrorism. The second category is uh, very rare in EU counterterrorism, and that's a terrorism-specific measure. So a measure that's introduced in order to answer a challenge or respond to a challenge that is considered to emanate from the nature of the terrorist threat itself. The primary example in the EU is the EU's uh, financial disruption provisions, both in money laundering, but also the counter-terrorist financing procedures that were introduced um, after the CADI litigation in order to have an EU system of freezing assets, for example, and listing that would be compliant uh, because of problems with the UN system. So it's extremely rare to actually have a terrorism-specific measure of that kind introduced at EU level. And more common is the terrorism-related measure. That is a criminal justice measure that has a counter-terrorist application and where part of the rhetoric and discourse around its introduction was couched in terms of countering terrorism. Um, A good example there is the use of, uh, it sounds very technocratic, but it's pretty interesting, the use of um, databases and border control, um, like the Schengen Information System. To some extent, the EU will tell you that having a border control database system of that kind is a necessary cost of having freedom of movement. Uh, within the European Union, because the external borders are the, real, are the only real borders and have to be controlled. They don't like to call it surveillance. And they will say it's not counter-terrorism related at all, but the debates around its introduction are clearly couched in uh, the language of countering terrorism, as well as countering other um, kinds of, of crime. And it's, in fact, increasingly becoming characterised as countering terrorism because, as some of you may know, the preoccupation at present uh, in security in Europe is people going to Syria and then returning radicalised uh, to Europe, and they're wanting to further concretize the data uh, databases and border control. There was a council conclusion last week to this effect um, in order to try to, to deal with the problem of so-called foreign fighters. Uh, so the 239-odd measures can be broadly categorised as fitting into one of these three um, different um, ideas. Um, so that's what we're, we're dealing with, um, a very uh, young system of countering terrorism, but a very, as most toddlers are, I suppose, young and hyperactive, right? So we have a lot of activity um, going on. If that's the context, then, how do we actually make EU counterterrorist law? Now, there are a number of different processes that might... And here I'm thinking about how do we take into account implications for rights that might emanate from these laws and other measures. Um, There are a number of things one could talk about. We could talk about the European Parliament, which has been almost systematically excluded from debates around counter-terrorism. That will get better now after the Lisbon Treaty and the Parliament has a a more clear constitutional role here. We could talk about public consultations, but those are all quite ad hoc when it comes to making um, counter-terrorist laws and measures. They are addressed um, in the paper, 
But what I think it's more interesting to focus on is what's known as the ex-ante impact assessment. Um, on the one hand, it sounds a bit boring because it's a form that gets filled out. Uh, but it's actually, especially if you're a little bit of a regulatory freak like me, it's incredibly interesting in terms of, of what it's supposed to do. So the ex ante impact assessment is supposed to provide an evidence base rather than a substitute for political decision making um, in the EU. And effectively it was instigated in 2002 as part of the Union's better regulation and better governance uh, proposals. Uh, this followed on from some fairly scathing conclusions uh, from the working group on regulation that had assessed the EU's the legitimacy and quality of EU lawmaking. The idea behind providing an impact assessment, which is an evidence base, is effectively to increase the legitimacy of EU law and also to increase its quality. So those are the official objectives behind it. Uh, what of course, the core question is what constitutes impact in an impact assessment. And it's categorised by the Commission's guidelines in three ways. We have economic impact, environmental impact, and what they call social or societal impact. Societal impact is where rights live. So what will be the impact of this measure on society, including individual rights, a sense of social cohesion, a sense of democratic value, our principles, our societal values, and so on. And in the impact assessment, these three different types of impacts are lined up one beside each other, economic, environmental, and societal. In order to produce what is sometimes referred to as a pre-legal proportionality analysis, right? In other words, that is the conclusion that we come to in the impact assessment. Does this seem proportionate or not as a measure to introduce? The process is quite long. It usually takes about a year to do an impact assessment. Um, and it involves the Commission consulting with what it defines to be key stakeholders in order to achieve three objectives. So we consult with the stakeholders to identify the problem. We think there's a problem and we want to verify that by talking to stakeholders. We then consult with the, the same stakeholders. We then consult with the same stakeholders to, to get their reactions as to potential impacts or desirability, rather, of a number of options to address that problem. And we consult with the same stakeholders to assess what they think <coughs> the impacts of each of those three options, usually three options would be. And then we propose one option to the parliament or councillor, whoever it happens to be, based on the impact assessment. So it is participatory, but the participation is based on who the Commission identifies the key stakeholders to be. Uh, and you see, unsurprisingly enough, the same, if you're interested in networked governance, the same people appearing as key stakeholders again and again in the ex ante uh, system, and they're doing these three things at the same time. The thing that, from the perspective of rights, is really quite interesting here is the difficulty of trying to line up side by side something like a forecasted economic impact with a forecasted societal impact. Because we can get um, logistics specialists and accountants and all these people, economists, to forecast the likely cost of doing X in X million of euro or whatever it happens to be. What will it cost? What will it save us? What will it create in terms of economic confidence? And we line that up against an assessment of the potential impact on rights where we cannot 
with the best will in the world, say that this is likely to lead to an 11% reduction in privacy and a 4% reduction in something else equating to X number of euro, right? We can't do that, rights are not quantifiable in that way. So that, as is always the case, I think, in a predictive or speculative exercise, we're trying somehow to make an assessment where we have a mixture of qualitative and quantitative information. We're trying to weigh them up against each other, which is always challenging. Um, What makes that even more challenging here is the fact, and this came out repeatedly in the interviews, including interviews with the Commission that actually does the impact assessment, what makes it particularly challenging is how light touch the right-based assessment, the societal impact part of these uh, ex-ante impact assessments is. Uh, So you have a number of pages of economic costing and so on, and then you have a number of pages describing the right in question. In other words, you know, a first-year student could have written the description of the the rights and then a paragraph saying these would be interfered with, but we think it's proportionate, it's mitigated by X, Y, or Z. So uh, if you took a kind of a Ginsburg approach of let's just count the number of words, it might look like societal impact got the same amount of weight as economic impact, but if you take out the purely descriptive words... And look at the analytical part, it's quite short. Um, so that's, it's maybe not, it maybe should be expected in a speculative forecasting process, but nevertheless interesting. Now, this means that the system of ex ante impact assessment is participatory, but only in as much as the Commission decides who key stakeholders are and does take impact into account, but only in as much as they can be accurately forecasted and effectively factored into an analysis, which is extremely challenging. As I said, we might expect this to be the case in a speculative or forecasting type of exercise, and maybe that's not that problematic. Well, on its own, it's not that problematic, but we must remember what these ex-ante impact assessments actually do in terms of their function. They provide the evidence base for political decision-making. That's one thing. But after the measure has been introduced, they also do something important. So if we have a measure that is actually subjected to an ex post facto review, which we'll see in a while doesn't happen quite as often as it ought to, the assessment of the measure is as against the objectives for the measure laid out in the ex-ante impact assessment, usually. In other words, the ex-ante impact assessment gets to both provide an evidence base and shape the discourse of review in terms of the measure. So it's quite interesting. It's not always the case, but usually the terms of reference for an ex post facto review will be, does it fulfil the objectives laid out in the impact assessment? The other thing that is happening or beginning to happen with these ex-ante impact assessments is that they're beginning to be used as aids to the Court of Justice. Um, so that where we have a technical assessment that has to take place as part of a proportionality analysis, for example, sometimes there are technical aspects, uh, the ex-ante impact assessment is being used uh, in some cases to effectively tell us what the technical impact of the measure is. Um, so non-legal questions, it's very, very helpful to the court in the case, I think two cases where it's been used uh, so far by means of providing an assessment of non-legal impacts, which are then weighed up against legal impacts of of impact on rights in a proportionality analysis. So the ex-ante impact assessment is not nothing. It's not insignificant um, in all of these ways. Um, So that's what I'd focus on in terms of making EU counterterrorism. 
In terms of implementing EU counterterrorism, there is uh, the, the vast majority of implementation takes place at the national level, um, and there are significant variations across member states in the extent to which some of these measures are implemented at all, in the extent and in the ways in which they're implemented. So with some of the non-legal measures, for example, they're not actually of concern to every member state. We might have a non-legal measure about maritime security, right? Well, if you're, I don't know, if, you, if I can't, now my geography has failed me, if you don't have um, a sea border. That's always the example. If you're Luxembourg, you don't really care, right? So you're unlikely to invest your resources in finding a way to operationalize this measure. There is a process always of taking... The, the text of a measure, which is often a compromise and therefore general, and actually putting it into practice. And that takes a lot of resources at domestic level. So this is the first unevenness, is that some states will simply practically opt out of implementing some measures. Um, and that's usually, usually those measures are not made compulsory because the, the political consensus couldn't be there. So that's fine. But other legally binding measures have within them so much discretion built in that they end up being implemented in grossly different ways across the different member states. And here the Data Retention Directive is an excellent example. So this directive um, had three important parts that were left to the discretion of states. This is a directive to require telecommunications companies to retain your information and make it available to state authorities for the investigation of serious crime. Right? So three things. Retention, uh, availability and serious crime. None of those three things are defined in the directive, right? So the retention period is left up to the states. Anything between 6 and 24 months and the national legislation would decide. We saw very significant variances across states. The definition of a serious crime is left uh, to the discretion of the member states. So that... Um, for example, 10 member states defined it by reference to the minimum prison sentence, 8 required it by reference to um, national and public security, and 4 member states implemented the directive through legislation that used the term serious crime but did not define it. Um, the UK was among those states. So we have massive variations as to what you can access the information for, and then massive variation in terms of the third thing, what uh, entities can access the information. Uh, in some states it was only uh, police forces. In some states also tax forces could access the information. And in some states you had to have a judicial warrant. In others you just had to make an application in writing. And that was sufficient. So this one EU counter-terrorist measure, a capitalising measure, albeit, has very, very different impacts across the member states because so many pockets of discretion are built in to the measure that it's up to the member states to decide really how to implement it and resultantly the extent to which it will impact on your fundamental rights if you're within the European Union will be dependent on what state you happen to be in when you answer your phone or check in on Facebook or whatever it happens to be. So we have massive variations um, across states. It is a little bit unusual to have that level of variation, uh, but it was very problematic uh, in the context of the Data Retention Directive. It was also problematic beyond rights, by the way. So for a major international telecommunications company like Vodafone or something like that, they're having to deal with grossly different regulatory regimes across the different member states. It's costing them an absolute fortune 
uh, in terms of retaining uh, data. The third phase, then, is reviewing EU counterterrorism. Um, and I think what's important here is to remember that review of public... Review is a core part of good public policy making, right? Because when we're deciding whether or not to introduce a policy or a measure, we can, as I said earlier, only ever be speculative. We cannot actually know what the real impacts economically, environmentally, or societally are, socially rather, societally is probably not a word, until we actually see it working in practice. Um, And so for that reason, good governance policies would suggest we ought to have review as a general matter, and that review ought to be as open and transparent and evaluative rather than ritualistic as possible. Now, in the context of security, that's always challenging because our tendency as a general matter is to introduce a security measure and then introduce another one and another and another and to create a mass of security measures without necessarily undertaking a public policy review of the operation of those measures. That's not uniformly the case. Uh, In some jurisdictions like the UK, a review will take place here by the independent reviewer of of anti-terrorism legislation, or in Australia, by the monitor, who is about apparently to be, well, the office, not the man, about to be abolished. Um, uh, The Netherlands has a committee that does something similar. But that's all quite unusual, right, to have that level of systematic rather than ad hoc review of security measures. In the context of the EU, there is an acknowledgement that review is an important part of better regulation and better governance. So out of these uh, 88 legally binding measures, uh, for example, uh, 59 uh, contained a review clause where the review was to be done by the Commission, and a further nine contained a clause requiring review by the Council. But of those 68, only 33 actually took place on time, 10 are pending, and the rest have either not taken place or cannot be found because they're not public. In fact, they've not taken place uh, in, all, in all likelihood. Um, and I won't go through it, but if, you, if we break down the different types of, of measure um, along instrument type, we see that the difficulty with the failure to actually undertake ex post facto review is systematic rather than uh, being uh, located in a particular part of counterterrorism or related to a particular instrument type. So the, the, the actual instigation of a formal review is not at all as frequent as it would be based purely on the language of the measures themselves. But what about when a formal review actually takes place by the Commission? Well, these formal reviews are being, have been heavily criticised, particularly by civil society, for being political rather than evaluative um, operations. Partially, I guess, because we're asking the entity that provided the evidence base for the measure to then also assess whether or not the measure, uh, in fact, replied or responded effectively to the problem that had been identified. But if we use the data retention directive again, this is a rare occasion where formal commission review was undertaken almost on time. It was only a couple of months late, which is unprecedented. Um, and the review was undertaken in three stages. First of all, there was a, uh, a conference where stakeholders were asked to give papers, uh, which is review, apparently. Then there was a questionnaire that was sent out, and then there was a second conference. And in every part of this review process, a number of key concerns were raised. Concerns about a lack of harmony across the member states, 
concerns about the fact that the directive required blanket rather than targeted surveillance. We were all surveilled under this directive and that this wasn't justified. This made it a disproportionate interference uh, with rights and especially concerns about different uh, periods of data retention. Indeed, at that first conference, as part of the review process, the European Data Protection Supervisor described the directive as the most privacy-invasive instrument that had ever been adopted by the EU. In its formal review, the Commission said, oh yes, this is costing people quite a lot of money to implement, and we recognise that some people are concerned, but data retention is very important, and we might fiddle around the edges of the directive a little bit, but in effect we don't propose to change the approach to blanket surveillance or the degrees of variation across member states. So that these key concerns that had been raised at the ex-ante impact assessment at time, thank you, um, at the, during the review and uh, in a number of national courts, at this point Romania, the Czech Republic and I think Germany had all said that their governments couldn't implement the directive because it was too rights invasive, were effectively sidelined, effectively ignored. Um, to the extent that civil society lost so much faith in the practice that they created a shadow review. Uh, the European Data uh, Protection, I'm oh, sorry, the European, um, an, an NGO, uh, European Data Rights or something like that, uh, created a shadow, European Digital Rights, a shadow report um, arguing that the directive was an unnecessary and unprecedented violation of the fundamental rights of 500 million Europeans. This was partially motivated uh, by the fact that a large number of states never provided statistics to the review, even though they were legally required to provide annual statistics on data retention and access. So we have a lot of states that are not fulfilling the requirements that allow for review. So the Commission-led review is problematic largely, although not exclusively, because it's not clear that it is rigorous or scientific rather than being a little bit political. And in any case civil society doesn't have faith in it, so there's a legitimacy issue around that review in the uh, insufficiently large number of cases where it happens. The other kind of review that happens to a greater extent is what um, we term here indirect review uh, by courts. So we only indirect because uh, we are talking in this paper about review of the operation of a measure which includes a legality review but isn't limited to it. Whereas a judicial review, of course, is a legality review. Um, and the, I won't go through the case, but in April, the Court of Justice struck down the data retention directive, finding it to be disproportionate <coughs> on the basis of precisely the things that had been raised and flagged as concerns at the ex ante stage, in the national courts, and in the ex post facto review. So precisely the things that we were told had been mitigated by the rigour of the directive uh, were the things that made it legally disproportionate from a rights-based perspective. Um, now, of course, in, in many ways, if you're a judicial review enthusiast, in, in particular as I am, this is a good thing because the court is stepping in and being muscular in relation to a security matter. But from the perspective of public policy making and good governance, it is better in many ways to have the rigour of a review that is more holistic, more evaluative um, and more kind of participatory than a mere judicial review. So judicial review does a lot of important things here, including getting rid of the measure, 
but it's not a good governance review, right, of the kind that we would have expected to find in the ex post facto reviews. Um, and as a result, it's difficult to conclude that just better ex ante uh, policy making <coughs> and more effective ex post facto review would have done a better job uh, of improving governance than uh, the fact that the Court of Justice had to come in with the nuclear option of getting rid of the directive. So at these, in each of these three stages then, making counter-terrorist laws and measures, implementing them and reviewing them, concerns arise in relation to rights. Uh, those concerns um, relate largely to participation, openness and transparency, and the genuine difficulties of trying to assess rights as against what are conceived to be more concretely measurable values, such as um, economic costs and benefits. However, those problems have to be understood in the context in which they're arising here, which is the context of a supranational uh, organisation. So before we propose any improvements, there are two things that have to be grappled with. Um, the first thing is trust. Each of our interviewees in the, public, in the policymakers field, for example, when we spoke about review, said that the primary barrier to review is a lack of trust between member states and between member states and the European institutions, in as much as you will not get a disclosure of statistics as to usage of these measures going from national to supranational level, because there is a fundamental lack, a fundamental unwillingness to share that information. Um, there is also a jealousy which is part of that trust on behalf of national institutions who feel that if anyone, or which feel that if anyone is to review security measures, it ought to be a national institution because this is a national matter, even if what we're reviewing is the implementation of measures that emanate from the EU. The second challenge, uh, which I won't spend too long on, is the nature of... Uh, is the nature of possibilities of review at European level. When we talk about review at the national level, we primarily talk about pitting, uh, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, courts against parliaments. We sometimes talk about inquiries and reviewers as alternatives in the middle, but those are the paradigms that we tend to think about. But in the European Union, you, you don't have that kind of oversight capacity in the Parliament in lots of ways. The European Parliament is an extremely strange creature uh, from an institutional perspective, not least because the thing that binds people together in groups in the Parliament are broadly conceived conceptions or descriptions of ideology rather than any particular policy commitments that are shared usually between them. So that it's very difficult to get oversight rather than grandstanding in the European Parliament in lots of ways. Part of the challenge that emanates from that is that there is no system within the European Parliament for the receipt of classified information. So that even if we put in place an oversight committee, at present we would have to put in place a system by which the members of that oversight committee could receive classified information in closed session where the necessity arose, which is not unusual uh, in domestic parliamentary oversight systems. Um, however, it's difficult to get that, not just because of the trust uh, issue that I raised earlier, but also because uh, a very interesting study by Matthias Vermeulen a few years ago found that a large number of MEPs didn't want 
to be able to receive classified information because it would impinge on their capacity to speak freely. And when you are an MEP, divided from your constituency by lots of things that make you feel remote, you have to have the capacity to grandstand. You have to have the capacity to make noise. Uh, And you can do that on the LIBA committee now by making noise without having to hear classified information. But if you were hearing information in closed session, you would then be restricted in what you could say. So there is a fundamental institutional challenge there, uh, which is interesting and important to grapple with. I'm going to go about five minutes over, sorry. Um, So how then do we try to come up with the proposals for improvement that take into account those two issues of trust and of uh, institutional difference or institutional idiosyncrasies uh, within the European system? Um, In the paper, I talk about improving the ex-ante system by improving participation and rigour rigor there, um, and in particular by having a transparency-first principle uh, in terms of how we make and subsequently implement uh, security or counter-terrorist laws and measures at the EU level. But because I'm going over time, I won't spend uh, too much on that, except to say that if we are going to properly address this while acknowledging the trust issues that exist then we must recognise that transparency in the context of security does not and cannot look the same as transparency in some other contexts. In other words, there will be points at which we cannot, and things about which we simply cannot have an open public consultation. We will need to accept that some entities act as proxy speakers for participation, so that uh, people who hold positions in the union's institutions that relate to rights, like the Commissioner for Rights or the Data Protection Supervisor, at points, especially ex-ante in the process, will speak as proxy speakers for participation, but that as it is implemented and reviewed, participation should then open up to the extent possible. So that uh, if we go in, if one goes in there with a proposal, as some MEPs um, have done, Sophia and Felt might be familiar to some of you as a particularly outspoken member of the LIBA committee who says, well, we should have access to everything. It will never happen. Um, not purely for jealousy, but also because it is genuinely the case that in security you cannot be as transparent as you can be, um, it, or in the same way, transparent in the same way as you can be in other contexts. Um, But there can be more transparency in review. And so the last thing I want to do is to just uh, talk about how we might institutionalise review within the system of EU counterterrorism. So the proposal is to effectively scrap this idea of putting a review clause into the particular measure which keeps people happy at the time but doesn't necessarily lead to any review or any meaningful review. So in EU counterterrorism, a clause for review is a little bit like a sunset clause in domestic counterterrorism, right? It keeps people happy, but it doesn't always do anything particularly effective later on. For that reason, and because impact is temporarily bounded, in as much as impact on rights might shift, and the acceptability and proportionality of an impact on rights might shift depending on broader circumstances like the threat level or the nature of the political situation, there is a need to have regular and effective evaluative reviews that are participatory to the extent possible. And there are three possibilities that we might suggest. Uh, The first possibility is to establish something like an EU uh, reviewer of counterterrorism. So something like David Anderson, but for the EU uh, level. That will never work. 
couple of reasons. Uh, reason, in case anyone thought I was wildly optimistic today, don't worry, I'm not. Uh, the first reason is that for um, an office like that to work, the mandate holder needs to have enormous amounts of trust from a, an enormously uh, varied number of stakeholders. You need to have security services that are willing to tell you things so that you can trust that they're giving you all the information that you need. You need civil society to believe you. You need communities, suspect communities, as Patty Hilliard would say, to believe that you are actually doing things uh, in a way that they recognise as legitimate, even if in the end you don't come to the conclusions that they would have preferred. You need disparate support from an awful lot of people. Um, and try to get that in the context of an institution where we can't even agree who'd be the president of the commission, and we're in an extremely difficult position. Uh, to get all the member states to agree on a particular nominee will either result in a fudge, or there will be a stasis and nobody will be appointed. Uh, or someone will be appointed who then the member states don't give information to. So in effect, an EU reviewer, while a nice, uh, neat idea uh, in the abstract, won't work. Um, the second option is to have a system whereby national states, or whereby every state reports on an annual basis to the European Parliament on their implementation, or, or by biannual basis even, on their implementation of EU counter-terrorism. There are shadow reports, and you have effectively the equivalent of a monitoring system that you find in human rights treaties. So that you have state reporting with responses and hearings and recommendations, and a requirement to respond to these the likelihood is that that would also not be especially effective if we care about a better governance review because these systems become highly politicised, the matter of trust continues to be extremely challenging, especially in the context of supranational um, uh, supervision and states may simply, as they do in lots of other parts of EU counterterrorism, just not report. So you have uneven evaluation across member states. And so the third option seems to me the one that is more likely to be successful. And this is one that tries to combine national level oversight with some European oversight. So that what we would do is to say that whatever the national oversight body for security or intelligence or counterterrorism is, would go through its national process of review and then prepare a report from that that went to the European Parliament or a committee of the Parliament which could then invite responses and have a hearing and so on from civil society. There would be a requirement to respond to the recommendations that would come. But a lot of the issues of jealousy, institutional incapacity or misdesign or ill-design and trust would be mitigated by putting the information gathering and assess primary assessment policy at the national level where it already exists. In other words, adding a strand to that national level of review where you will already have processes for receiving classified information, you will already have relationships of trust, one hopes, between the relevant bodies and the oversight entity, and the particularities and variances that arise from real national circumstance can be effectively contextualised and taken into account. Would it become a paper tiger? Possibly, but it would at least be a regular process of review that tries to mitigate these different uh, tensions. So even though the EU is, a fairly, uh, is fairly new to the business of counterterrorism, it is not an insignificant actor. 
there is a need to model uh, effective um, systems at EU level, particularly as the EU begins to become a teaching state in regionalised counter-teaching state, teaching entity in regionalised counter-terrorism, like, for example, this informal, informally uh, regionalised response to Boko Haram that is now developing in Africa, where France is a very is a leading state, for example. So there are internal and external reasons for improving governance uh, at both the, implement, the making implementation and review levels uh, in order for rights to be taken more effectively into account in counterterrorism. I went seven minutes over. Sorry. Okay.